Today is the 193rd anniversary of a strange event that took place in Bavaria, Germany, a tale that is mysterious and sad and filled with hope and ultimately tragic. One of the most famous cases of the so-called feral child, that of the young man named Kaspar Hauser. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Kasper Hauser. On May 26, 1828, a shoemaker named Weichmann found a boy somewhere in his teens wandering the streets of Nuremberg, the second largest city in Bavaria, which was part of the German Federation at that time. He seemed in decent enough health, but he was unable to speak. He had two letters on him, one addressed to the captain of the 6th Cavalry's 4th Regiment, that started with the notation, from the Bavarian border, the place is unnamed, 1828. That's what it said. It literally said, the place is unnamed. The letter is unsigned, and so nobody knows who wrote it. But the letter says that the boy had been given to the writer as a baby on October 7th, 1812. And the writer further says that he educated the child in, quote, reading, writing, and the Christian religion, but never allowed him out of the house. The boy now wished to be a cavalryman like his father, and the letter ended by saying that the boy should become a cavalryman or, quote, if he isn't good for anything, you must either kill him or hang him in the chimney. The second letter claimed to be from the boy's mother, though the handwriting was identical to the handwriting in the first letter. The second letter said the boy's name is Casper. He was born on April 30th, 1812. His father was dead but had been a cavalryman in the 6th Horse Regiment. An odd tale, to be sure, so Weichmann took the boy, who could not speak, to Captain von Wessenig's house. The captain read the letters and then tried to interrogate the strange and mysterious young man. Casper could only say, quote, I want to be a cavalryman as my father was, and sometimes he would just shout the word, horse, horse, and that seemed to be the extent of his vocabulary. Except for also the words, I don't know, which he would repeat tearfully when asked many questions. Captain von Wessenig didn't know what to do with him, so he took him to the police, and there the boy wrote down the name Kaspar Hauser. The police asked him more questions, which he seemed a little more able to kind of answer. The police got the impression the boy was probably around 16 years old, but not quite all there, if you catch my drift, mentally. He did seem to understand what money was and how money worked. He could say a few simple prayers, 
And he could apparently read, though very, very slowly, and it had to be super, super simple, like a child's level. But they could get no concrete details out of him, so they tossed him into prison as a vagabond because it was illegal to be a vagabond. So for two months, Casper lived in Nuremberg Castle's Lugensland Tower, which was a sort of city jail. At first, he had quite a few difficulties. They gave him a mirror, which he reacted very, very badly to. He did not seem to understand what it was. And the smell of cooking food was so strange to him that it bothered him. The jailer said the boy seemed fit enough physically, but simple. However, the mayor of Nuremberg had heard about him and come to visit him on several occasions, and he began to think that the boy actually had an astonishingly good memory. Soon other upper-class curiosity seekers came to see him as well, and he seemed to welcome the company. He would eat only bread and drink only water. All other food he refused. And though he could walk well enough, the bottoms of his feet were smooth, like a baby's feet, as if he had not been walking long, though he was somewhere around 15 or 16 years old. He seemed to be in this kind of odd state of innocence. He thought that images he saw in paintings were real, and he tried to interact with them. Someone gave him two wooden horses as toys, and he would talk to them and even try and feed them. He was utterly unashamed at nudity, not seeming to understand there was anything wrong with it. Over time, Casper learned to read and write and speak better, and his tales started to emerge. Apparently, he had spent his entire early life in a dark cell about six feet long, three feet wide, and about a foot and a half high. That's it. He slept on straw, and he had three toys carved from wood, two horses, and a dog. Each morning, he would find a chunk of rye bread and some water next to his bed. Sometimes the water was fine, but sometimes the water was bitter, and then he got sleepy and slept for a very long time. Whenever he woke up after this kind of a sleep, his straw had been changed and his hair and nails had been cut. This was his life for many years. He never saw another human being. However, not long ago, a man started to appear, but always keeping his face in shadow. So Casper never saw him clearly. This is the man that taught him to read and write a little bit and started letting him out of the cage once in a while so that he could learn how to stand up and eventually how to walk. He taught him to say the sentence, I want to be a cavalryman like my father was, though Casper did not understand what this meant and just repeated the sounds. He was then taken to the outskirts of Nuremberg, given the two letters, and told to walk towards the city center. Well, that's what Casper said, but local gossips thought that they knew the real story. Some said that he'd lived in the woods and been raised by wolves. Others said, no, he had royal blood and was a bastard child who had been hiding. Others said, no, no, he's an imposter trying to pretend that he has royal blood. Keep in mind, this is pure conjecture on the busybody's part. Casper never made any such claims. Well, the president of the Court of Appeals of Nuremberg, Paul Johann Anselm Ritter von Feuerbach, who was a legal scholar who led the charge for abolishing torture in Bavaria, took an interest in the boy. The city of Nuremberg sort of adopted Casper, and he became something of a town mascot. People donated money to keep him housed and clothed and fed and to further his education. He was written about the local papers and soon papers outside of Bavaria and Germany as well. Before you know it, he was known all over Europe and much talked about. The poet Friedrich Dauma took him in and taught him a number of subjects and found the boy was particularly good at drawing. 
He also conducted benign experiments on Hauser with various herbs and with magnets. Dama was a big believer in some sort of mystical power of magnetism. Dama's notes say that when a magnet's north pole was pointed at him, Hauser said he could feel it pulling at his belly. And when the other pole was pointed at him, the boy said that he could feel a strong wind blowing on him. Never Never a dull dull moment. moment. Life continued for about a year and a half with Dalma. On October 17, 1829, Casper did not show up for lunch. A search ensued, and he was found down in Dalma's basement, a bleeding cut across his forehead. He said he'd been on the privy when a hooded man had burst in and said, you still have to die before you leave the city of Nuremberg, and then attacked him before fleeing. Shocked by this assault, Casper sort of snapped back to his old habits, and instead of running upstairs for help, he crawled through a trap door in the cellar to hide. He said, however, that he recognized the man's voice. It was the same man who had taught him that cavalryman phrase and brought him to the city. Well, rumors flew around the city of Nuremberg. Oh, for sure he's a prince, people said. Probably from the house of Baden. No, no, no. He's English royalty, said others. No, no, he's Hungarian. No, you've got it all wrong, other people said. He cut himself with a razor because he wanted attention. This is what Dalma ended up thinking. He and the boy had actually argued that morning because he'd begun noticing that Caspar Hauser lied a lot. So Dalma was done with him. Casper then went to go live with a local judge, Johann Bieberbach. Six more months seemed to pass innocently enough, but then on April 3, 1830, a gunshot was heard coming from Casper's room in the Bieberbach home. People rushed in and found Casper lying on the ground, bleeding from a wound to the right side of his head. He said he climbed up on a chair to get some books from a high shelf and he fell, knocking the pistol from the wall. I guess people in Bavaria had loaded pistols on their wall as decoration. And then it hit the ground and went off and hurt him. However, much as in the case with Daumer, that very morning, Casper and Bieberbach had had an argument about Casper's irritating habit of lying pretty much all the time. The authorities investigated and found that, well, Casper and the Bieber box were really not getting along very well. So they transferred him to another home, the home of Baron von Tucha. But the von Tuchers were also displeased with Casper after a few months, saying he was vain, dishonest, lazy, and spiteful. Late the next year, Lord Stanhope, a British aristocrat, became interested in Casper. He petitioned to be given care of the boy and was happily granted it. As I said, the Von Tuchas were about done with him. Stanhope really wanted to get to the bottom of where exactly Hauser had come from. So based on things Casper had said, he took him to Hungary twice, hoping that maybe that would jog his memory. He seemed to have some memories that Stanhope thought sounded like Hungary. And he'd even said a few Hungarian words when he wasn't paying attention. And once, Casper had told Stanhope that his mother was Countess Maitany of Hungary. So Stanhope took him to Hungary a couple of times, hoping to jog his memory, but it didn't pan out. And after a while, Stanhope began to, like everyone else, question Casper's honesty. After less than six months, he too was fed up with Casper and placed him in a boarding school in the town of Ansbach, which is about 30 kilometers southwest of Nuremberg, though he did continue to pay for the boy's upkeep. The schoolmaster, one Johann George Maya, was a pretty strict by-the-book sort of a guy, and he too came to the conclusion that Hauser was dishonest, fond of making excuses, and never taking any responsibility for anything himself. 
1832, Hauser got a job at a law office copying documents, and while he kept hoping that Stanhope would one day take him to England, the relationship between Stanhope and Hauser became more and more distant. Then, Anselm Ritter von Feuerbach, the very first man who took an interest in him when he first came into Nuremberg, died in May 1833, and Casper expressed great sadness at this news. However, papers found in Feuerbach's effects said that he had come to regard Caspar Hauser as a, quote, smart scheming codger, a rogue, a good-for-nothing that ought to be killed. Caspar did not know Feuerbach's opinion of him, however, and continued doing what he'd always done. And continuing to behave the way he had always behaved, really started to fray his relationship with the schoolmaster Johann George Meyer. They quarreled on December 9th, 1833, about an impending visit from Stanhope. Casper saying finally he was going to get to England, and Meyer saying that he had failed Lord Stanhope because Casper was such a lying jerk. Again, Casper had no idea that Stanhope was no longer terribly fond of him. Stanhope would tell his friends that he thought that Hauser had somehow deceived him and maybe nothing he had said was true. Less than a week later, on December 14th, Caspar Hauser returned to his lodgings, bleeding profusely from a stab wound in his chest. He said that someone had told him to go to the Hofgarten, which is a large park, where a man had said something to him. The man in question handed Caspar a bag and then stabbed him when he was distracted. Caspar ran home and dropped the bag en route. While doctors tried to help the injured young man, police found a purple bag in the park, and in the bag they found a note written in mirror writing. That is, it was written backwards, and you could only read it if you held it up to a mirror. The note said, Hauser will be able to tell you quite precisely how I look and from where I am. To save Hauser the effort, I want to tell you myself where I come from. Then two blank dashes. I come from, from, yes, two froms, then three blank dashes, the Bavarian border, two blank dashes, on the river, four blank dashes. I will even tell you my name, M, L, and O with an umlaut. Pretty weird, pretty cryptic. Nobody knew what really what to make of it. Kasper Hauser never recovered from the stab wound in his chest, and he died on December 17, 1833. He is buried in the city cemetery of Anbach, where he died, and his tomb reads, obviously in German, Here lies Caspar Hauser, riddle of his time. His birth was unknown, his death mysterious, 1833. Later, fans would put up another memorial to him that has the inscription, Hic occultus occulto occisus est, which is Latin for, Here lies a mysterious one who was killed in a mysterious manner. A moving moving target. target. The prevailing theory of the time among those who knew him was that maybe Casper had concocted all of this business about the bag and the weird note and being stabbed in an effort to rekindle interest and sympathy in his story. Since, again, he and Meyer were very much on the outs and he was probably going to need a new place to go. Or, and, to make Stanhope feel pity for him and finally take him to England where he really wanted to go. The weird mirror-writing note was in pencil, and Casper, who fell into a feverish delirium while dying from his stab wound, kept muttering about writing with a pencil, and the note had spelling and grammar errors that were typical ones that Casper made. The note had also been folded up in the bag in a very unusual triangular kind of a way, which is exactly the way that Casper folded his own letters. So, 
Many folks thought that he had simply written the note himself and then stabbed himself, but maybe he screwed up and stabbed himself too deeply or in the wrong place, and then he ended up dying from his self-inflicted wound. So just what was or was not true in Caspar Hauser's story? Anyone who spent long periods of time with him came to think of him as a compulsive liar. And yet, he behaved as he did when he first appeared in Nuremberg. That's, that's not in question. Nor is the fact that his feet were smooth like a baby's, like they'd almost never been used. But as to all the rest? Hmm. Modern-day psychologists say that if he had truly been raised in a short cage, never seeing or hearing another person until he was 15 or 16 years old, he would never have been able to learn how to speak or read or write and would probably not even have lived to that age. Later forensic analysis of his wounds cannot rule out a self-inflicted wound, but neither can they rule out that someone else was holding the knife. What about all those rumors that were floating about? Could he really have been a prince of the Baden family? Well, in 1996, the magazine Der Spiegel carried out a DNA analysis of blood taken from Hauser's underwear and concluded that he was not of the Baden line. However, in 2002, the Institute for Forensic Medicine at the University of Münster ran DNA tests on hair and skin found on other articles of clothing, yet their samples, which all matched one another, were different from the 1996 Der Spiegel test samples, which then threw everything into question. So it cannot totally be ruled out that he was in fact a bastard princeling of the Baden family who had been kept in isolation to keep him out of the line of secession, but who knows. As crime novelist Edna Buchanan says, the past is an unsolved mystery and the truth is a moving target. The fact is that, as intriguing as the case of Caspar Hauser is, we will never know the truth. If he did concoct it all himself, then what the heck was he trying to get across with that cryptic MLO umlaut at the end of that letter? Why would he say that he would write where he was from and then leave only dashes? Had he meant to fill that in later? And anyway, where the heck did he come from? Where had he lived for the first 15 or 16 years of his life? Even if he was born, let's say, a simpleton, why did the smell of food bother him? Why did mirrors freak him out? And if he'd been on the road on the way to Nuremberg, why were his feet so smooth? On the other hand, if some or all of what he said is true, why was someone trying to kill him? So you have the attack on the privy, then you have the accidental, oops, I accidentally shot myself, and then you have this second attack. Why then? Surely there were many other times that they could have killed Caspar Hauser, so why only the two attempts? The story of Caspar Hauser fits comfortably within a category of European folklore that's been around for centuries, that of the feral child. These are children supposedly who totally lack enculturation, are often unable to speak or use a toilet or sometimes even walk upright. And there have been tales of children like these for ages. Children raised by wolves. One thinks of the mythical founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus. Children raised by bears, monkeys, sheep, cows, goats, ostriches. That would be an interesting story. Almost all of these are, if not outright fiction, legends and myths. Stories for the campfire. Maybe one of their purposes was to keep misbehaving children in line. Hey, be thankful for what you've got. You think I'm bad? You could be being raised by ostriches. Sadly, though, there have been some cases that have been fairly well-documented and may have at least some basis in truth. Though, obviously, the further back you go, the spotier records become. Victor, Victor of Aveyron. Near the end of the 18th century, a 
boy estimated to be about 12 years old or certainly in early puberty somewhere was found in southern France. He'd actually been spotted a couple of years earlier and people always kind of kept a lookout for him when traveling or hunting in the area. In 1797, he was caught by some men and taken to the village of Lacone. A widow took him in, but he was uncooperative and would only eat vegetables, either raw ones or ones he had cooked himself, but he would not trust other people to cook his food. And after a week, he ran off. Then, two years later, in late 1799, he was seen in some woods outside the town, naked and hunched over. Again, similar story. He was taken in, kind of weird and uncooperative, ran away after about a week. A week after that, he was found hiding in someone's house, and he was taken to the local orphanage and given into their care. He ate no meat, walked on all fours, disliked clothing, and seemed unable or unwilling to speak. Some doctors examined him and determined he was an, quote, idiot from birth, and that that was that for them. Others weren't so sure, thinking that they saw signs of intelligence, but he was badly undernourished and underdeveloped, and it also maybe seemed like he might be deaf. So, he was sent to the National Institute of the Deaf in Paris to be cared for and studied. Now, the French being French, the boy sparked much conversation about what is it exactly that makes us human, and perhaps in some ways his wild, feral life was a purer form of existence than that of the urbanized and urbane so-called civilized people. Oh, that's a very interesting thing. I say, shall we go have another coffee? But the boy himself seemed unwilling or unable to learn very much and, and often just wandered around the halls. A young medical student, Jean-Marc Gaspard Itad, started spending a lot of time with him, sort of unofficially adopting him and mainly focusing on trying to get the boy to understand and use language. Because he didn't want to just keep referring to him as the boy, he decided to name him Victor. Itad said that he thought Victor's ear had no ability to understand sounds for anything other than like warnings of danger or fruit falling from a tree. The ears worked, but the language processing parts of the brain, or the ear as they thought back then, weren't functioning. The boy only learned to say two things, the word mile and the phrase mon dieu. He did, however, seem to learn some forms of recognizable human behavior. One day, Itad's housekeeper was crying in a room off on her own because her husband had just died and Victor walked over and put his hand on her back in a consoling fashion. Itad adapted his teaching methods. Instead of trying to force the boy into the mold that classical pedagogical systems would have him fit into, he watched how Victor interacted with his environment and then tried to reach out to him and teach him in similar ways. Today, Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard is considered the founder of methods for communicating orally with the deaf, improved systems of pedagogy more tailored to the individual, and what is popularly known as ear, nose, and throat medicine. Over the years, Victor and Itard developed what one writer called an action language that, while still rather primitive and nonverbal, was a coherent and consistent method of communication. Itard observed that the boy behaved as if he had the brain of someone born deaf and mute, though he was actually neither. It's just that his brain could not process sounds or oral signals as having any kind of sense. So with no real way to communicate complex concepts, rumors flew around Paris back in the day as to where did this boy Victor come from? And as always, some thought he was royalty abandoned to die in the woods because he was mute and an embarrassment and blah, blah, blah. Others thought that the boy showed signs of abuse at the hands of other humans. Itard himself came to believe the boy had been abused and neglected by alcoholic parents and had run away taking his chances in the wilds and forests of southern France. 
Victor continued to live and work with Todd, but in 1828, he caught pneumonia and died, probably about the age of 40. Later professionals looking at Todd's documentation have come to the conclusion that Victor was probably, in addition to essentially being deaf, at least a little bit autistic. Like Caspar Hauser, Victor's story has inspired people to create works of art, including the 1970 film by Francois Truffaut, Les Enfants Sauvages and some poetry and a couple of novels. Homo, Homo Ferris. In the mid-18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau popularized this idea of the noble savage, a human who lives in a state of nature, free of sin, free of greed, unburdened by modern bourgeoisie concepts of morality, which all come from religion. What is is for such a being, and nothing more. The fictional character created by Edgar Rice Burroughs of John Clayton II, Viscount of Greystoke, better known as Tarzan, certainly took a page out of Rousseau, and and Burroughs used the character to examine how hypocritical so-called civilization is. Obviously, Rudyard Kipler's character Mowgli in The Jungle Book is another such character, speaking with animals and feeling much more at home in their environment than that of his fellow humans. The Swedish botanist and zoologist Carl Linnaeus created the modern system of naming organisms in the mid-18th century, and one category he later suggested was Homo ferus, or feral man, a sort of a hybrid category blending human and something more natural. Needless to say, Rousseau loved this, as did Goethe. This notion seemed to be very attractive to those who felt that the civilized, urbanized world was robbing people of something important. It also fit nicely with cultural ideas of race somehow being determinant of character and ability. Linnaeus initially had focused on skin color for his human categories. People with whitish skin he called Europeans. Red, quote-unquote, was American, meaning First Nations people. Yellow was Asian, and black was African. This is where those cliches come from, is from this categorization system. Though probably well-intended, these ideas would later be used as justification for institutionalized racism and colonialism in the following centuries, and still persist even today, despite so much work trying to counter that. Most of the feral children who were found, like Victor, and who were returned to the bosom of enlightened civilization, were not living some kind of carefree existence closer to God and nature. Looking at these instances with a modern eye, you can't help but think that, far from some sort of state of grace or innocence like Adam and Eve in the garden, these were neglected children, possibly even downright abused by people who could not or would not cope with some sort of a condition, be it physical or mental. And then there are some cases of children being used experimentally in misguided attempts to figure out what it is that makes us human. And one of the great differentiators between us and animals is language. The biblical story goes that all humans once lived all together in one place and spoke a single language. God, in the plural form of the Elohim, sees that they're building a very tall tower, and they, the Elohim gods, say, wow, look what they can do when they cooperate. Let us go scatter them and confuse their language. This is actually what the Bible says, by the way, in the book of Genesis. God creates multiple languages rather capriciously, not because humans are arrogant or are trying to reach heaven, just kind of because it's fun. So different languages and different races, it would be reasoned by later thinkers, were all created in this one incident, which many people thought was a historical fact. 
So what were they speaking before the Tower of Babel and before God scattered them? It must have been the language of Adam, the very first language that Adam spoke with Eve and with God and that Adam used in the Garden of Eden to name all the animals and plants, which was his job there after all. For most people, this would remain an interesting speculation to be discussed over cigars and cognac. But others thought that maybe they could recreate that first pure language. They just needed some children to experiment on. The Twelve Calamities Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II was the one who gave the Przemysli Duke of Bohemia Ottokar I the Golden Bull of Sicily in 1212, granting him the right to call himself and his heirs King of Bohemia. So, here in the Czech Republic, Frederick II is looked upon favorably. But Frederick, honestly, was not really that nice a guy. At least to people. He loved animals, maintaining a large zoo and spending large amounts of time studying the natural world. Some people thought he wasn't even really a Christian, and Dante actually has him consigned to the sixth circle of hell and the inferno, repeatedly burned and entombed for his pagan Epicurean ways. Dante was probably taking a page out of a book written by a Franciscan friar, Salambene of Parma, called The Twelve Calamities of Emperor Frederick II, which, in addition to being a major medieval text on numerology, the book details many, if not all, of the emperor's faults, though it then concludes that Frederick would have been possibly the greatest emperor of all if he had actually been a Christian and loved God and the church. Frederick was one of those larger-than-life personalities, and his absolute power meant that he had the means to pursue the answers to questions that plagued him, as well as indulge whatever whim took his fancy. He once cut a scribe's thumb off because he didn't write the emperor's name in exactly the style that he wanted. And he conducted a number of gruesome experiments. He would seal prisoners in barrels to see how long they could survive without food and water, and to see if one could actually observe the soul leaving the body at the moment of death. In another experiment, he would feed two men a large dinner and send one out hunting while the other one just lays around and slept. He then had both men disemboweled to see the effect of exercise and sleep on digestion. But his nastiest experiment involved children. Frederick wanted to discover that original language of Adam, so he would grab babies from mothers in his lands and instruct them to be raised with an absolute minimum of interaction. They could be fed and bathed, but they must never be spoken to no matter what. He thought that if this held true, they would spontaneously start speaking Adam's language, maybe. However, the children, starved of affection and human interaction, withered away and all died very young. It turns out that babies need more than just nutrition and shelter in order to survive and thrive. They need emotional connection as well. Children who lack this suffer what is known as non-organic failure to thrive. Some of this is because children who are neglected are often also undernourished, but the emotional component also seems to be a deciding factor in physiological health and growth. Neglected children's immune systems are less effective, they often do not grow fully, they have anemia, thin hair, dry and cracked skin, and low insulin production, and the list of maladies goes on and on and on. In the most severe cases, they exhibit damaged cognitive abilities and even an inability to process calories effectively. And in the most extreme cases, like in Frederick's experiment, they simply die. Now, to be fair, a lot of this tale comes from Salambene of Parma's book, The Twelve Calamities, and the monk was no fan of Frederick's, and many historians wondered just how accurate this book is. 
especially considering that Salimbene was not a member of Frederick's court and would not have had much access to the emperor. So how did he get all of his information? Were the second-hand accounts, third-hand accounts, pure fiction? Impossible to tell. The Forbidden, the forbidden experiment, experiment and, and the, the Dumb, dumb house. house. King James IV of Scotland, who ruled from 1473 to 1513, loved language. He spoke several himself, Latin, French, German, Italian, Spanish, and Flemish, as well as English and Scottish Gaelic. And he also wanted to figure out what that primeval tongue spoken in the Garden of Eden was. So he sent two newborn babies to the island of Inchkeith in the Firth of Forth to be raised by a deaf mute and kept away from all other human contact except each other. He hoped that they would spontaneously speak this language of the gods like Adam and Eve must have. There were some reports that the children ended up speaking very passable Hebrew, though these accounts are deemed unreliable at best by modern historians. Sir Walter Scott would later write, Quote, it is more likely they would scream like their dumb nurse or bleat like the goats and sheep on the island. King James may have been inspired by an account in the work of the 7th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote that the Egyptian pharaoh Psamtik I sent two infants to the most remote part of his kingdom to be raised in a similar fashion, with no exposure to language at all. When they got a little older, they would babble sounds, and in the babbling, the pharaoh believed he heard the word bekos, which is an old Phrygian word for bread. From this, he deduced that Phrygia predated the Egyptian civilization and was actually the first one on earth. He was wrong, but he didn't know that. There are some historians today who think that it's likely that all three of these accounts, Frederick, James, and Pharaoh Psamtik, are all apocryphal. However, there is one such experiment that is widely thought to have in fact happened. Akbar the Great was the third Mughal emperor ruling much of modern-day India from 1556 to 1605. He believed that the acquisition of language came from hearing it, so he had 12 babies, other accounts go as high as 30, raised by mute nurses in a building that became known as the Dumb House. Dumb used to mean unable to speak. After a dozen years of literally never hearing even the tiniest snippet of language, the children were found to totally lack the ability to speak. They did communicate, however, in a kind of offbeat sign language that they seemed to have developed themselves, though the mute nurses almost certainly communicated with one another using some kind of created-on-the-spot idiosyncratic sign language, so it's possible the children had picked this up and adapted it. But they could not speak using their voices, and could not be taught to speak in later years. And so Akbar thought he was right. Tay in a way. Cool experiments aside, there are other cases of language deprivation, often through neglect. Around 1932, a girl named Isabel was born, and for six and a half years, she was kept in a room with her deaf-mute mother. She was finally rescued from this and placed in a hospital ward with other children where she began to learn how to use language through exposure to others and concentrated language training. After a year and a half, she had a vocabulary of around 2,000 words and went on to be able to form complex sentences and speak at a relatively high level. 
Also in 1932, a girl named Anna was born out of wedlock. Ashamed by this, her mother tied her to a chair and fed her only milk. She had no contact with anyone apart from her mother. She was discovered a month before her sixth birthday and removed to a home in the country. She gained weight and muscle there, but she had trouble adjusting to the social environment. She was then sent to a foster home and developed a little bit to about the development of a one-year-old. While she could understand and follow instructions, she never learned how to speak herself. In 1971, social welfare workers discovered a 13-year-old girl named Jeannie who had also lived strapped to a chair. She was removed from that home and steps were taken to correct her malnutrition. Easy enough, but the developmental problems lingered. She was unable to speak, but she had no problem looking people in the eye, and she even had what might be called proper social skills. She just couldn't speak. She was tested and found to have no control over pitch or volume. She would make high-pitched, eerie, whispering sounds. Eventually, she learned to speak a little bit. Vowels were easier than consonants for her. And after four years of therapeutic work, her language level got to somewhere around a two-year-old level. The fact that she had apparently started learning language in her 13th year is thought to be the main hurdle to her developing language fully in later years. Now, sometimes neglect is kind of an accident or the result of ignorance. One famous case is that of Grace and Virginia Kennedy, two identical twins born in Columbus, Georgia in 1970. They seemed relatively normal, but their father thought a surgeon had told them that the girls might have developmental disabilities. Now, this doctor was just thinking out loud, but the parents thought it was some sort of an official diagnosis. So they just kind of thought, oh, well, the doctor says our kids are screwed. And so they paid very little attention to them, essentially writing them off as a lost cause. Both parents worked a lot and they weren't often home. And so essentially they were raised by their very old grandmother who is in no condition to play with them. Oh, and grandma only spoke German. The twins had no contact with other children and were not sent to school. The father finally dialed in one day and started paying some attention to them and was astonished to discover that the twins were speaking to each other in their own language, one that they had apparently made up. He decided that their very basic grasp of English, because the twins had only ever heard English when mom and dad were around and bothered to interact with them, they didn't have a TV. This poor grasp of English was proof that, like the doctor had said, he thought developmentally challenged, and that's why he'd never sent them to school. He later lost his job, and while talking to a caseworker, he mentioned, just rather offhandedly, that his daughters had this kind of private language. Speech therapists were dispatched to look into the case, and they discovered that the girls were not impaired at all. They were average intelligence at minimum and had developed their own complex idioglossia. Their language was very fast and staccato, and this speaking style transferred to English once they learned it properly thanks to speech therapists. This private language seemed to be a weird mixture of English and German with other phonemes and sound combinations as well as some unique grammatical constructions. In their language, their names were not Grace and Virginia, but Pogo and Cabengo. The story made it into national papers in 1978 became something of a sensation. In 1979, French filmmaker Jean-Pierre Gorin made a documentary about them. Now, attention now upon the father. The father forbade them to continue speaking in their private language. This guy is a real winner for father of the year. Eventually, the girls went to school and lived somewhat normal lives, learning to speak English, but in this kind of weird rapid-fire kind of a way, and the lack of proper emotional support in childhood would always affect them. 
American playwright and screenwriter Mark Hanley, while living in a cabin in the Pacific Northwest, came across an article about the twins that inspired him to write his 1987 play Idioglossia, which in turn became the basis for the 1994 film Nell, at the behest of Jodie Foster, who'd bought the film rights and who starred in it. Foster would get a Best Actress Oscar nomination for her performance. And then there's the weird case of an American computational linguist named D'Armond Spears. He's a member of the Klingon Language Institute, not because he's such a Star Trek fan, but because Klingon is a complex artificial language that has been fully developed over the years by linguists as a sort of a language laboratory. You can even get degrees in it, and apparently it is quite difficult, the equivalent to cramming an entire master's program in linguistics into a single course of study. So in the late 90s, he thought he'd try an experiment with his newborn son, Alec. He only spoke to the baby in Klingon, and when he spoke to his wife, he spoke in English. His wife would speak to the baby in English. Around the age of three, the boy started focusing exclusively on English, rejecting Klingon. Today, Alec speaks English as a native speaker and remembers no Klingon at all. One assumes that, if they had seen problems arising from this, they would have stopped with the Klingon, but no harm, no foul, I guess. In both the twins, Poto and Kabengo, and the case of the Klingon-exposed Alec, the children learn to speak English at a completely normal native speaker level. Some people think this is because their language centers were activated from a very early age, and that's why learning a native tongue was possible. Casper Hauser Syndrome Extreme emotional stress or deprivation can result in something called psychosocial short stature, often abbreviated to PSS, but also sometimes called Casper Hauser syndrome. It's thought that the body, because this person is in a high stress environment for a protracted period of time, releases so-called fight or flight hormones almost constantly. This causes the heart rate to accelerate and resources that are not immediately vital, like the production of growth hormones, are bypassed until the stress alleviates. But it never does. Combine this with malnutrition, as is often the case, either through neglect or the result of essentially growing up in a wild or feral environment, and you often get a person of short physical stature and low weight, sometimes with bent limbs and often with at least some cognitive problems. When the person is removed from the stressful environment, development continues as it would have normally, though there will usually be impairments because it's been so long. In 1987, police in Australia raided a new age cult known as The Family, run by a yoga teacher and guru named Anne Hamilton Byrne, where one of the children rescued was a 12-year-old girl who was only 44 pounds and under 4 feet tall, but who then achieved normal weight and grew 4 inches in the year following her rescue. Wait too long, though, and it's possible the person will never achieve a high level of language use, as in a couple of the cases that we've talked about in this episode. We started with a strange case of Casper Hauser, who was almost certainly the victim of neglect, at least based on the evidence available. It's been rather conclusively proven that he was not a child of royal blood who was kept out of the way, and yet his story still tantalizes. He almost certainly had exposure to language before his mid-teens, since he learned rather quickly to speak at a fairly high level. Was he actually wounded and eventually killed by mysterious assailants, or did he simply crave attention, I mean, no surprise really, and make a mistake that turned out to be fatal? No one knows the true story of the strange boy who showed up at the gates of Nuremberg on May 26, 1828, 
but that he lived and did in fact die in weird circumstances is undisputed. It's the rest that's had people scratching their head for many years. He continues to baffle and inspire 193 years later. There are films about him, TV episodes featuring characters based on him, musical works, Poems by Verlaine, Georges Trackel, and David Constantine. Novels by Jakub Wasserman and Marion Hauser. No relation. He has been referenced in many other works. He's mentioned in Herman Melville's Billy Budd and Tolstoy's What is Art? The 1943 science fiction novel Sinister Barrier by Eric Frank Russell has Hauser as the product of non-human laboratory experiments. Harlan Ellison has Hauser as a man pulled out of his time stream in the story The Prowler in the City at the Edge of the World. Hauser is referenced in Paul Auster's 1985 City of Glass, Jonathan Lethem's 1997 As She Climbed Across the Table, Catherine Neville's 1998 The Magic Circle, Jeffrey Eugenides' Pulitzer Prize 2002 winning novel Middlesex, and many, many more literary works. His name was used by an alt-rock band from Massachusetts in the 1980s and has been used in numerous songs. In the academic world, there is the aforementioned Casper Hauser syndrome. And if you raise an animal away from others of its own species, this is known as a Casper Hauser experiment. He is an enigma and his tale is an enticing mystery. And it is certainly one that shows us that the world indeed is weird. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy clearing house we're closing now but we'll open another crate in the next episode until then thank you for listening